Episode 106 of the Tartan Running Shorts podcast, hosted by Tom Bryan, myself, Kyle Gregg. So, Tom, you're sitting outside in your backy just now, and uh, as a, as I am, um, you've got your you've got your extension lead as well in your in your garden to ensure that all the connections for the podcast are all ready to go. So, so how are you doing in this bright sunny day on a Monday bank holiday? Good. I say I was going to say good evening, but it's good morning. It's technically it's eleven fifty nine, so we're technically recording in the morning for the first in a while. I'm very well, thanks. It's a bank holiday. I'm off work. The sun's shining. I've done my run, so yeah, can't complain, mate. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm buzzing. Um, I I only put the extension lead out just for one thing, and then you gave me a call saying um, fancy podcasting. So before before that call, um, I ended up going for a wee buggy run with Logan. And then I decided to to chop all my hair off, so I've got a. Ooh, wow, that's a that's a slick cut. Another bald head again. So, so Kyle's um, in, a, in a baseball cap. I'm going to take mine off to show him mine. Look at the state. Look at the state of that. That is that. I mean, it's getting out of control now. This barnet. Blooming hell. That's that is, it's, it's like you know, when you haven't cut your grass for about five months. <laughs> that's what your that's what your head looks like right now. Jeez, oh. Well, um, well, saying that, talking about cutting hair, um, so I, I was started trying to trim my hair, and then I dropped the, I dropped the trimmers, so the half of the back of my head is still overgrown, um, <laughs> and I can't get it to work. So here you go, look, check this out. So I can't get this bit in that bit. Oh dear! So I don't know what to do, Tom. I mean, I'm sure in all the supermarkets at the moment. They're all sold out because everyone's chomping at the bit to, to chop off their, their barnet. So, anyway, this is pretty crap chat at the moment. We've we've actually got a, quite an exciting episode, don't we, Tom? We do. So yeah, this week we've got we're going to continue our our run through the British Elite Women, which has happened for London, which has happened quite kind of organically. So we've got Steph Twell on this week, which is great. Really enjoyed catching up with Steph, one of the Scotland's top athletes, Scottish marathon record holder, of course. So that's cool. And we've got a bunch of other things. We're going to talk about retro race results. That's continuing on 1987 London this week. We've got a bit of news for you. We've got our training. We've got some fartlet questions between ourselves. And, I mean, we should also add, this week the episode is again brought to you by Windswept Brewing, uh, our favorite Lossiemouth-based brewery, where, um, where they believe a, a pint is best when you've earned it. And since it is now just gone midday, I'm actually opening a beer because it's bank holiday and I'm barbecuing this afternoon. So I'm on, a, on an Aurora, which is a, their Northern Light Pale Ale. It's a, a nice little 3, 3.8% number, a light refreshing session beer. Oh, nice. They described, it, they described it as being a... Um, Dry hop with New Zealand hops for a fresh, fruity aroma and a better finish, which I would uh, I would tend to agree with. And interestingly, so I mean, Aurora being the 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 Northern Lights um, that are, that you can see up near Lossiemouth on the Moray Coast. So yeah, that's where the where the name comes from. But yeah, I'm I've got to say I've really been enjoying working my way through the the windswept beers. So listeners, I would encourage you if you're looking to buy some beers for your the sort of this great weather we're having in May or June, then head to windswept brewing.com and, and pick up some well i can't say that i've earned my beer yet tom um because i mean you're you've been working away and you've uh, you've got a day off today um i'm away on the up to the suey today on the bike for half an hour I'll, i don't do that much on the bike so nice. after that i think i might 
earn myself a cheeky wee uh, Aurora Good later man. on, hopefully. Good Within man. Within the hot sun. So Check. that'll be exciting. But we, we, I think you missed out. Um, you've got your highlights today. We're also speaking to the man, the myth, the legend. That is Fraser Klein, aren't we? Or you yeah. have. You were yes. chatting to him about. Uh, so, well, retro race results, yeah. Exactly. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. And um, it's, yeah, you, uh, that might be a good good place to start. Do you want to put that interview on? And Absolutely. So I'm going to go. So before we go into it, let me jump in then. This is retro race recap. So the, now, now set the scene. We're now on to 1987 London Marathon. Uh, we talked last week about 86, which was won by uh, Japanese runner Seiko. And to cut to the chase, I'm going to go to the result because um, it was a win for Taniguchi, uh, another Japanese runner. He won in 209.50, beating uh, Hugh Jones. And, you know, Britain's Hugh Jones, who's won at run London previously at this stage. Hugh Jones, who it struck me, reminds me of Will Mackay. You know, Aberdeen and Bedford's Will Mackay. He's got that kind of horrible hardened look to him when he's running you know you know and if, if will what listens to this i'm sure will will know exactly what i'm talking about and take it uh you know take it on the chin will looks like he's running hard when he's running you know he's got that there's sort no, of you know you know what i mean don't you there's no prizes for um aesthetic running style it's there's prizes for winning races so um, <laughs> yes. you know you've got to sacrifice something you can't you can't have it all you know <laughs> and well, anyway, so Hugh Jones has that look to him, and it's really cool because through the sort of, particularly through that sort of middle part of the race, that middle, or sort of, you know, through halfway into the, to the second half of the race, you can see um, Hugh Jones presses the pace a fair bit, and it's when it's down to it's two or three of them, and Hugh Jones really, he looks like he's working hard, but as, you know, Brendan Foster is commentating says and i'm sure he he must know hugh jones he was saying you know hugh's not he, this he's not working hard at this pace that's just how he looks which is i thought was <laughs> reminded me just like will so um anyway uh it was hiromi, hiromi tanaguchi breaks clear late on and wins in 209.50 hugh jones in second place um and uh yeah there's a on the women's side it was a win for ingrid christensen who won her third london in 228.48 and uh, she was actually going for a world record and she went through the first half um, in what looked to be world record pace, although they don't really, the time splits coming through the BBC were, are not so clear, which they, they admit to. But the interesting part of the race is, so I'm watching, I'm watching the race and it kicks off and from the gun, I'm thinking, that's Fraser Klein off the front. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking that's an Aberdeen vest leading London. You know, at the start of London, and I've seen you in the same video in like 2016, not leading, but fairly well up the field. You know, you've got this wide road I and it all well goes to it. I went up the field before the start line. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you know, in these on London, these, these mass races, you, this long, wide start whittles down to a point quite quickly. And it's like, it's really cool. You can see this like V of runners all, anyway, Fraser's right in yeah. front of that. And sure enough, Fraser go, it goes through, eventually gets to the first mile and it's, you know, here's Fraser Klein leading on four, 449 through the first mile. I'm thinking, that's pretty hot for Fraser. You know, that's, uh, you know, I know Fraser's a 211 guy, but I, I wasn't, I was thinking that's uh, to lead London. I didn't know that. Anyway, we'll hand over to Fraser now and we can talk a little bit. Um, then you're going to get a little bit sort of convoluted here because we talk a bit about his previous Londons, a bit about 87. And then we talk a little bit about his marathon and beyond that. So Fraser Klein, here we go. Fraser, you've had pr so prominent some of the London marathons early on. I mean, 
what, tell us about your earliest London Marathon experience before I, I come to some 87 footage I want to share with you. Okay. Um, right. The first time I did London Marathon was 1983. Um, my mate Graham Lang had run the very first one in 1981. And uh, Graham and I were in Aberdeen at that time pretty similar. We kind of most of the races we had together, I would beat him by a few seconds. He'd beat me by a few seconds. But in 1981, he went to London. I went to the World Cross Country oh, Championship nice. the same weekend as the first London Marathon. Is that right? And, wow. Yeah, and had a, a disastrous run. <laughs> oh, no. Graham went to London. Graham went to London and finished fifth in 2013-59. And I remember thinking, wow, that's incredible. I, I'd never run a marathon at that point. And in many ways, that was my inspiration for, for having a go at the marathon because, as I say, all the way through our careers, there'd been nothing between Graham and myself. And, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of realized that weekend, cross country if I could make the top 100 in the world championships that was pretty good but it you know it wasn't going to do anything um but if you can finish fifth in the London Marathon then that's that sounds more interesting so and was it big I mean was it how was I mean now we know London's monstrous what what was it perceived as at that stage that early first years well I think it um it really took off pretty quickly because I I mean compared to now the numbers were pretty small I think 7,000 in the first Mm. year but it was oversubscribed. You know, I don't think they anticipated the, the numbers that um, they would eventually get. And within a few years, it had grown quite significantly. But up until that point, I always remember the, the very first, well, the first modern-day Aberdeen Marathon in 1979, which had yeah. something like 70 runners. <laughs> and that was the biggest marathon ever held in Scotland up to that point. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, phenomenal, 70, 70 runners. And, uh, of course, a few years later, Glasgow had about 10,000. And that just shows you how quickly marathon running grew in the early 80s. And London was really, um, because Chris Brasher had looked at what was happening in New York, and that marathon had taken off again in its first year in the mid-70s or early 70s, had only about 120 runners. Imagine that New York Marathon with 100 and odd runners. That's crazy. Um, crazy. Grew, grew dramatically. And um, Brasher thought, well, if we can do it in New York, we can do it in Britain and we can do it in London. And, and that was, you know, he set it up and it just took off. The same year was the first great North run that Brendan uh, mm-hmm. Foster set up in uh, Newcastle. And similarly, it attracted thousands and thousands of runners, and the whole thing just took off from there. So, um, so that was 81. I ran my first marathon later that year in Aberdeen. Uh, and by 83, when I did London, I think London was my, maybe about my fourth or fifth, fifth marathon. Okay. Um, and a, a, a wee bit different from from now it finished on uh, Westminster Bridge. So the final mile was up the mile, down Burkage Walk, and then finishing on Westminster Bridge. So you're running the opposite direction from from what they do nowadays. Uh, And it finished on the middle of the bridge. That's nice. My memories of that one um, are that it was uh, a classic for me, a running too fast, too early. a mistake probably most of us make in our marathons, but <laughs> I remember going through the first mile and it was something like 4.54 and 
and I was looking around, there's God, there's about 30 or 40 guys running 454 for the first mile, which is about 28 pace. I thought, mm-hmm. I don't think there's going to be 40 guys running 28 <laughs> pace today. So we're all running too fast. You know, I think the world record at, at that time was um, about 28. But it continued. It was a perfect day for running. It was um, a slight drizzle, no wind, not cold, not warm. You know, if you're picking your ideal marathon running conditions, that was the day. So we sped on, and I think I went through halfway in about 64, 50 odd. <laughs> nice. And to cut a long story short, ended up with 214.29. So you can work the splits out for yeah. yourself, and you can see the second half was a bit of a disaster. But funnily you- enough, um, I, I can't remember my place, but I never saw Graham, Graham laying throughout the whole race and yet he finished one place in front of me <laughs> nine seconds in front of me i never even knew that that's um, amazing and again it shows you how struggling i was in the final mile because i couldn't I, you know i wasn't even interested in who was just ahead of me i was just concentrating on getting to the finish and i actually stopped about 300 yards from the finish i thought i was going to be sick it was right oh, wow. beside big right beside big ben. <laughs> <laughs> And I was totally oblivious to the crowds. And it was only when I stopped and kind of bent over. And I just heard this, ooh, (laughs) what's he going to do? And I thought, oh, no, this is embarrassing. Um, So I kind of just kept going and uh, stepped over the line, 214.29. And at that time, that was a PB for me. So I was delighted with that. I mean, I think I've I've watched that footage and uh, it's amazing. You see, because of Mike Grattan who won in '83, and you're on his shoulder in the first, uh, like I think like the 10k split is really good. And you, oh, you're you're there with the the red headband. You can pick you out a mile off. Yeah, well, well, Mike Mike ran a sensible race. You know, I don't think he was all that far ahead of me at halfway, okay. I and mean, he wasn't le- he wasn't leading at that point. You know, a lot of guys went way way too fast, um, and he paced it perfectly. He just kept going at the same pace all the way through there was a lot of people if you looked at the guys that were there at halfway there was none of them yeah at the finish you know the guys that were running a good even sensible pace did did really really well and might might run that race perfectly for him yeah um whereas a lot of the rest of us uh <laughs> overcooked it early on and paid the penalty as you always do in the marathon and out of, uh, coming off 83 then, what was your, your takeaway from London? Do you think this is a fantastic event? I want to get back and do it again? Or, or were you bowled over? Were you underwhelmed? No, no. Um, it was fantastic. I, I'm trying to think. The, the races I'd done before that, I'd run Aberdeen, as I said, in 81 was my first one. Um, my second one was Gateshead in 1982. Oh, cool. which was, um, it was the Three A's Championship when the... Uh, uh, Commonwealth trial. Okay. I, I ran about two twenty there, and it was a miserable day, a horrible day, and there was hardly anybody watching from that. Um, then I did Aberdeen again in '82, finished third there. I think two nineteen fifty eight, just got under two twenty. Nice in Aberdeen, that's um, cool. And then '83, oh yeah, I won. Um, I won. I got a chance to go to California and run the Oakland Marathon, California, which. Oh yeah. Again, I seem to attract bad weather because it was a horrendous <laughs> day, driving oh rain and winds and miserable, typical Aberdeen weather. So it suited me. So I won that in 2018. And then London was only, that was beginning of 
February, London was April. Um, yeah. So it wasn't a lot of time. Um, but I knew in Oakland, I ran 218 on a bad day. I thought I can run a lot, a lot quicker than that. So London was the first sort of major race with huge crowds most of the way, although very different from nowadays in that the Isle of Dogs, that long slog out to the east, yeah. you know, was derelict. It was wasteland. You know, none of that area had been developed the way it is now, so it was pretty bleak. Um, but once you came back past Tower Bridge again, you know, the crowds were phenomenal. And that was one thing that struck me. The atmosphere was fantastic for, for most of the race. And, and just the, the depth as well, the depth and quality. I mean, I, I'm going to guess, I think 2.14.29, I think I was 22nd wow. in the race. And Mike won in 2.9, was it? Yeah, um, 2.09, yeah. So, you know, the, the range wasn't as big as it is now. You know, you'll get nowadays, obviously, your Kipchoge will win in 2.2 or 2.3 or whatever. But... 214 still probably i mean robbie did 214 robbie simpson did 214 mm-hmm. 54 a couple of years ago and i think he finished higher than i did and yet he was <laughs> half a minute lower so the standard at the very very front has improved dramatically mm-hmm. but in depth it's still not as good as it used to be and the other um statistic that i remember from that race was there were uh, Peter Wilson from Aberdeen ran pretty much bang on 220. And I don't think he made the top 100. Wow, that's amazing. He, he, might have, he might have been in the 90s, something like that. And he didn't even make the counting Aberdeen team. <laughs> the, I think it was the, the equivalent of the British Championships that year. We finished second to wow. Invicta, in um, Mike Grattan's club. Uh, oh, is that right? Okay. Mike, Mike won the race and led his team to first place in the team competition. And Graham Lang, myself, and Don Ritchie um, yeah. were the three counters for Aberdeen. And as I say, Peter, running 220, didn't make the count team. Wow, changed change yeah. days. Yeah, I mean, we had a whole stack of guys under 230. It was phenomenal. I, from Aberdeen, uh, it was pretty amazing. I've got to say, watching, watching all the old footage and seeing... You know, first, I mean, I I know that you know the depth was was bigger there, but when you watch it and you see so you know guys, so many guys, two twenty, there's so many people coming through, and they're you know regular British guys. It's quite it's quite motivating to see that and think, yeah, do you know, I need to get my finger out and and move faster. You know, yeah. there's no excuse here. You know. Yeah, well, I think I think that's it, and it was because there were so many people doing it at that time that it spurred everybody on. You know, I I give you the example that. When I saw Graham Lane run in 2013-59, I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And then when I did it, and I think all the other guys in Aberdeen were thinking, well, we train with these guys, so if they can do it, we can do pretty well too. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why we had a whole pile of guys running under 225 for the marathon because, you know, to be on an Aberdeen team, <laughs> you had to be sub-220. and Crazy. And, and, you know, at that time, we had a great depth to the, the distance running team in Aberdeen. You know, we, we did well in lots and lots of road races, not just the marathon. And I, I think just having that quality and depth spurred mm-hmm. everybody on and it gathers momentum. And I, I can kind of see a little bit of that happening now again in Scotland and in Aberdeen. You know, it's yeah. uh, when people have a little bit of success, when 
people see that they can run faster times, the other guys begin to believe that they can do it too. And it's a lot of it is about having that belief that yeah. you know, if you do the right things, you can you, know, you can surprise yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you, and hopefully that we see the times continue to come down. So, when was your next appearance at London after eighty three? Um, right, eighty three, eighty four. Yeah, eighty four. I did it in eighty four. Yeah, that's right. It was an Olympic trial, and um, yeah, I remember making the mistake uh, being a sports writer now, but not at that <laughs> time. I uh, I learned some lessons because I was interviewed by a guy before London saying, "It's the Olympic trial. What do you reckon your chances are?" And I said, "Well." To qualify for the GB team at that time, you know, was ridiculously hard. You, you really had to run two nine or quicker, certainly under two ten. And if you, well, I know you spoke with Charlie Spedding earlier in the mm-hmm. year, but Charlie got bronze in the Olympics that year with Steve Jones breaking the world record. We had mm-hmm. Jeff Smith winning the Boston Marathon. Yeah, with Hugh, Hugh Jones. Hugh Jones. You know, um, the standard was phenomenal. Alistair Hutton, John Graham, all sub-210 mm-hmm. guys. So I knew, you know, 213, 214. So I said to the guy, look, I've only run 214. I'd have to run sub-210 to make the team. And that was the way I said it in the sense that, you know, it's not going to happen. I'd yeah. have to run unbelievably. So that appeared as Klein aims to run sub-210. <laughs> At London, I thought, oh, my God. And, of course, I ended up, I think I ran 2.15. And um, so the yeah. headline on the Monday was Klein's Olympic bid in tatters. <laughs> 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 and, you know, realistically, it was never an Olympic bid. You know, it wasn't going to happen. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I can't remember too much about that race, actually. I remember it was quite a, it was a warmer day. It was quite a breezy day. I don't think I ran particularly well I don't think I ran particularly badly in fact I think I maybe even finished higher up than I did the year before so I've got you down Um, as 18th here in London 84 yeah so 215.50 or something yeah 215.54 yeah 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 other than that I can't can't remember much about it Um, so yeah and when you were you when did you I don't did you run 85 86 I yeah, 86 I did as well, and um, I, one of my few, well, well, one of a couple of DNFs actually, uh, it was um, Commonwealth year, and I'd already got a qualifying time for the Commonwealth Games, but mm. London was the final, I think it was the last day before the team was going to be picked, and I felt a wee bit of pressure to run London, I didn't really, I didn't want to run it, um, you know, I, I wanted to sit on the time I'd already got, but I knew all the other guys were doing it, and it was a bit of a risk. I thought, well, if all these other guys, you know, there's only three places on the team, if they run quicker than I've done, then I'm going to miss out. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought I'd better do it. Now, it turned out to be, I, I wasn't really in peak condition. I was trying to be fit for August, and this was April, May. Mm-hmm. and uh, again it was a horrible day it was a cold wet and windy day and I for some reason I, I don't know I was just wasn't in the right mood for it and I didn't warm up properly I was cold at the start mm-hmm. and after about 10k I was starting to my, my calves were getting sore my quads were tightening up 
everything was going wrong and I, oh, I was really, really struggling. But I could see the other Scots round about me and I thought, <laughs> oh, no, I gotta make an effort. Um, but after about 15, 16 miles, I realized that oh, I'm gonna bail out because I could keep going and I'll probably run about 220 something. But I knew there was a risk about dropping out as well, but mm-hmm. I just couldn't take the chance and injuring myself. So I did, I dropped out and I thought, I've probably blown this now. But fortunately, because it was such a bad day, none of the other guys ran great times. So, um, I, and I can't remember who did what that day, but uh, Lindsay Robertson, okay. who was picked for the team, I think he ran reasonably well. John Graham was picked anyway. Okay. And I eventually got the third place, but I know that there was a lot. The team was an, announced the next day, and Sunday evening, Monday morning, there was a lot of phone calls about you know, what happened to you, what, what went wrong. And I, I just, I was quite honest, I just explained the situation. And fortunately, because nobody ran any quicker than I'd done before, I got the place on the team. Mm. So it was a kind of a, a nervous London one for me that year. I bet it was. Um, I, I remember, and also, I've, I've, on the commentary on that, I heard them talk about, uh, there were, it was um, Brendan Foster and uh, the other commentator, they were talking about um, um, Al Hutton and, the, and speculating whether he would go marathon or 10,000 at the Commonwealth. So I guess he must have gone 10,000 then, did he? Yeah, Al- Alistair was a reluctant marathon star um, a fantastic runner over every distance you know a really really great runner obviously and had a brilliant record at London over the years and until the other year was still the Scottish record holder where like 2915 something like that Mm -hmm. Um, but I think um, if you spoke to Alistair he would admit that it wasn't his favourite event, although he was he was very wow. good at it. Um, he he really um, he was good, but he would prefer to have uh, certainly done the ten thousand at the Commonwealth, and he he actually didn't want a marathon place in eighty six. Wow! So he, he um, was so he did he was maybe that so, was. I was going to say he featured so often at London that he, you know I I assumed he was just a natural marathon. I didn't realise he had that reluctance. Yeah, well, um, that, anytime I spoke to him about it, he, you know, he said, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing well, but, you know, <laughs> the, well, um, I suppose like a lot, a lot of folk, you know, he, he was a very, he was an excellent 10,000 meter runner, but probably at world level wouldn't win anything. Whereas, in, again, in the marathon, he had the ability to, to mm. win top races. So you've got to go where where your ability is going to give you the best results. Yeah. But I guess, again, for people like me, it was quite beneficial that Scotland <laughs> had people that could pick and choose. So um, it yeah. opened up places and other events for us, yeah. So the, it's, so we move on to 87, which is what I'm really keen to hear about. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to, share, I'm going to share my screen because I want to see if you can – I'd like to share this with you and tell me if you can see this. So can you see that? Hey. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, I'm just going to play. You should get the sound as well. When the giant finger of Big Ben and reaches the half hour, a field gun of the artillery... So, this is the, this the start of London the Marathon. Of this is the year guns. that we see you Shortly go off beforehand. We're going to see, we're going to see you take the front of the minute. Now, that 
is controlled by Here the Greenwich time signal. The signal is relayed to the gun party and the starter's assistance. The time must be exact. The countdown is in the last 10 seconds. Loving the BBC graphics back then. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks so primitive now. It does. <laughs> With Big Ben as a reference. <laughs> now, I was watching this the, the other day, and it's I was I couldn't believe it. It picked you out instantly. I mean, the minute that that race, it, you can see there, it's come together. This is the, the women's start. We'll go back, it'll pan back to the men's start in a minute. Oh, and massive. the virgins and veterans streaming away on the red start. The first timers and the old timers. Right, here we go. So there you are, right on the front. Now, oh, yeah. that, so a lovely, lovely shot. What was so? I mean, they, we we then um, they then go on. If I just show, I'm going to show you the next clip I wanted to share with you is this one a mile in. So we've got the, the Japanese there. They are on the left of the picture. Hugh Jones in the middle. And Grenville Tuck back in the lead, wearing 129. Fraser Klein still there. And the two very, very good Japanese just looking across at uh, the English leaders, the men whose reputation precedes them. So we've got you at the first, pretty much the first three miles leading the London Marathon, which is, which is, which is, I mean, a great to see, um, really prominent. But Brendan Foster mentions um, that you were paid, that there was a Fraser Klein there to pace um, Charlie Spedding. Yeah, the, <laughs> it's quite a complicated story. Right. <laughs> um, right, the, the, the basic background was I had, I think a couple of weeks before London, there was the IAAF World Cup Marathon in Seoul in South Korea. And that was uh, quite a big competition at the time. And I, again, because it was just a couple of weeks before London, people had to make a choice, you know. Uh, and I always took the opportunity, if I could, to to run for Great Britain have selected in the major championship. So the World Cup in Seoul in 87, the year before the Seoul Olympics, seemed oh, wow. a great opportunity. It was um, for a number of reasons. I'll come back to London in, in a minute, but um, the, the course for the Seoul 87 World Cup was the Olympic course for 88. So it was an opportunity oh, to wow. see that. And the Great Britain team, um, Great Britain... Uh, selectors felt that it was an opportunity just to test out to give a whole trial for the whole pre-olympic prep so we went out cool. quite a bit in advance of the competition and stayed in a place just outside tokyo in japan which was to be the holding camp for the olympics the following year okay. so we were just um basically testing out the facility and this is an amazing place just outside tokyo a massive sports complex and we were the only people there. I mean, it had a, a running track, uh, an amazing gym, the most highly equipped gym I've seen even since. You know, back then wow. it was it was phenomenal. And we were there quite a long time before the competition. Um, and then flew over to Seoul just uh, a few days before the race. Um, and, I mean, again, we didn't do particularly well. I think Great Britain finished eighth in the team competition. But um, it's a very different era then. I think we all, I mean, I again, I finished nowhere. I was about around 217 and I was 48. And, uh, but I beat all the Kenyans. And that just shows you <laughs> how things have changed. That uh, you know, Kenya were nowhere at that time. Japan, America, Russia 
for the East Germany were the, the top nations. Anyway, I ran in Seoul. I'd also got the invitation to run in London, and I said to them, you know, I can't do, I can't do the marathon because I've just done a marathon. And they said, oh, well, I'll just come down anyway, have the weekend. <clears throat> if you feel like running a bit of the race, just do the race. So I thought, fine, okay, cool. I'll do that. So I went for a run on the Saturday. I think I did quite a long run on the Saturday uh, morning. And in the afternoon, I was sitting in the athletes' lounge in the Tower Hotel. And I was sponsored by Nike at the time. Nice. And I can't remember who it was. One of the Nike guys said, you're going to run tomorrow? And I said, well, you know, I'll probably just go and do my Sunday run. You know, I'll just take a nice <laughs> Yeah. And he said, well... We could quite do with somebody to uh, help with a bit of the pacemaking. The, the race has their own pacemaker, the guy Tuck. It was two brothers. Oh, yeah, and, I've seen them, yeah. Yeah, and one of them was to do the official pacemaking. He said, but for some of the Nike guys, we'd like somebody to go out at about you know, 210 pace. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know how long I could run that. You know, I've, I'm still recovering from the marathon. I've just done a, a decent run today. Um, he said, well, Charlie... Charlie's wanting somebody to do about 210 pace for the first 10 miles. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at that. But I hadn't actually spoken directly with Charlie about that, so I had no <laughs> idea. This was somebody else from Nike. And I wasn't sure, to be honest, if this wasn't Nike, just wanting a Nike runner to be at the front of the field. Ah, uh, right, okay. But I, I don't know. But anyway, I said, okay, right, I'll give it a go. Um, I, th- I can run five minute mile in for the first 10 miles, but that's it. I'm not going any further. So, um, so that was the plan. And we set off. And I think from memory, it was through 5K, it was maybe f- just on 15 minutes, something. It was, it was around about five minute mile, maybe yeah. slightly quicker. A little bit hot, 4.54 to the first mile, according to the BBC yeah. infographics. <laughs> well, yeah, that's probably right. Um, yeah, I, I seem to remember pretty close to 15 minutes for 5K. And and it kept going like that. But Hugh Jones, who was in the lead pack at the time, was indicating he wanted to go quicker. And he was saying to Tuck he wanted the pace to increase. So I thought, right, what do we do now? And um, so Jones was itching to push on. Tanaguchi, the Japanese guy, was obviously wanting to push on. So it was beginning to pick up. And I remember saying, I, don't, I think to Charlie or certainly to one of the other guys, I said, what do you want to do? You know, it's, you know, I'm running five minute pace. They're a way to go much quicker than that. They're going to be two eight pace. And the instruction I got was just keep it, keep it at five minute pace. So that's what I did. And, um, but they, there was a group began to pull away mm-hmm. and Charlie was in the group with me. And I thought, oh, this is a bit dangerous, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to make a decision, but mm-hmm. I, I just kept it going five minute pace. I got to 10 miles and 50 and I, I stopped and they went on. And of course, I think Charlie eventually finished eight and <laughs> um, yeah. quite a bit off the lead. So I'm not sure if I was partly responsible for, for that or not. But uh, as I say, I, I'd never had a, a direct word with him before the race. It was just based on the Nike instruction. And as far as I was concerned, you know, that was as much I was, as I was going to do. And I stuck to that and, and 
try to stop at ten, the funny thing was when I did stop at 10 miles, I was still in the top 10 or 12. And there was a guy from Aberdeen watching the race at that point, a guy called John Mammon. Okay. And he shouted for me just <laughs> as I was stopping and I stopped to talk to him. And he said, what are you doing? You're, you're in the top 10. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I'm only, I was only doing the pacing for the first 10 miles. I'm not doing any more. And he says, oh, wow. And people around the boat are going, what's going on? Why is this guy stopping to have a chat? <laughs> um, I thought, right, oh, oh, I'd better get going again. A hotel, which was beside Tower Bridge, which was maybe about 11 or 12 miles. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll just jog on to there. So I did, and I got there, and I tried to get through the crowds to get to the hotel, and they wouldn't let me. They'd go, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the the top 20. You know, you can't stop now. And I thought, oh, God, what do I do now? So I kept going, and eventually I ended up, I thought, I may as well just do a nice, easy Sunday run. So I ran round to 22 miles. Which okay. is when you come back to the Tower Hotel. Yeah. I had a real struggle getting off the course. You know, people, the crowds were so wow. fanatical. They just said, no, no, there's only four miles to go. You can make it. I said, I don't want to make it. <laughs> <laughs> don't give up. Don't give up. Said, <laughs> yeah, let, leave me alone. That's I really hilarious. Don't want to get to the finish. <laughs> so, well, so that was it. Yeah, so that was the, the, the rough story. Of, That's... Of 87. But when I went back um, the next day, when I, went, uh, I flew home that night, the next day in Aberdeen, I went for a run at lunchtime and I kept getting stopped by people on the street saying, what happened to you? What happened? <laughs> you, were, you were leading the London Marathon. <laughs> of course, you know, this, the coverage wasn't as good as it is now. And there's obviously no social media then. So nobody yeah. knew, you know, because I just disappeared from the scene. You know, I, I wasn't seen again in the race. And folks said, what happened? You were leading the race. What, where did it go wrong? And, oh, God. I couldn't get going. I couldn't get my run finished. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I think you uh, I think you did a pretty good job because I see that um, Charlie Spelling finished in 2.10 in the end anyway, which is what he was looking for. Uh, well, no, I'm not sure. I think he was wanting 2.10 pace. Ah, and then, then pick up. Okay. And then pick up. But that obviously didn't happen. And it's it's one of these situations in a marathon you've got to make decisions, you know. You set off at a certain pace if you're wanting to win the race and then the leaders or lead pack pulls away from your pace. Do you go with it or do you mm. hope you can catch them again? And or are you capable of going with it, which is the other thing. So I don't know. To be honest, I don't know what um what Charlie's feelings were. I know he was disappointed mm. with the result, but whether it was because he got it wrong tactically mm-hmm. or whether that was just what he was going to do that day anyway. I don't know. Um, mm. You know, you could go with the pace and then blow up or stick with your own pace and hope that the guys ahead of you blow up. Um, but yeah, he, he probably ran pretty consistently throughout the whole race. But for these guys, they are looking to pick it up in the second yeah. half. Yeah, I know the year that he raced, uh, obviously, the, the, obviously the year he won it, it was incredible. Even in 85, watching that footage when he was he had that tussle with Steve Jones and yeah, the, the, the pace in the second half was, was pretty hot. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we then don't, I mean, we don't actually see you then in the, any, I don't see any, you in any London results until 1997. So 
Did, well, I mean, we know you raced a lot in the in the in the states, and you know, incredibly successful there, including your 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 win and and PB in Sacramento. What was there? What what was the what was with the not appearing at London much? Because it seems to be, you know, the London Marathon. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think uh, well, that was four. Uh, 83, 84, 86, probably because it clashed with other things. You know, 83 okay. was important. That was the first time I did it. And that was a big PB for me at the time. Um, the following year, it was Olympic trial. So, you know, I felt I may as well have a go, even though I knew it wasn't realistic, but you knew it was going to be a, a good race. 86, I didn't really want to do it because it was too close to the Commonwealth. But again, I felt I had to do it. 87, I'd been running in the World Cup, um, so I couldn't do both. And as I say, I, I chose the, the major championship race rather than, than London has been an important mm. one for me. And then after that, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, 88, 88, I, I think... Yeah, I, I was just, being a marathon runner at that time, quite a lot of invitations and opportunities. And I guess I was picking and choosing between, you know, if I, I, I always want to run at the highest level possible. And always, as I said earlier, if I got the chance to run for Great Britain in a championship event, I would go for that. But because the standard was so high, I knew, like say, 84 and 88, I wasn't going to make the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. So... I thought, well, I'll go for races where I might be able to win the race or, nice. you know, do quite well individually. So 88, um, I ran in Casablanca <laughs> in March, which was about a month before London. And uh, that was a, a controversial race. I finished second at the same time as the winner. Fundamental that we would run in together. It would be mm-hmm. a decade. And then 50 meters from the finish, he sprinted away from me. Oh. Um, so I wasn't too happy about that. Yeah, but it's um, so a mistake. You know, you, yeah, you, you don't do that. We, we raced pretty hard for about 22 miles and um, eventually kind of looked at each other. And he said, do you want to just share it? And I said, yeah, fine. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then he did that to me. So I learned a lesson from that. But that was... Again, just a month before London, so obviously couldn't do London that year. What What was it like then to go back nineteen ninety seven to go? Because I didn't realize that you'd run in ninety seven in London, All right. the Flora London yeah. Marathon. Yeah, well, <laughs> I um I did it. I wanted to do it as a vet, but I hadn't been oh, okay. training too hard. I mean, I was ninety seven. I'd been forty one, forty two, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember phoning. Uh, Alan Story was the race director at that time. Alan was the former Great Britain marathon coach. Um, actually coached Mo Farah for quite a number of oh, years. Of course, yeah. Uh, before Farah went to uh, Salazar. Um, but anyway, Alan was the race director at London, and I called him up in 1997, said, any chance of a, a play? And he said, bugger off. <laughs> he said, you're too old. I said, well, but I'm doing it as an old guy. And he says, aye. But if I start giving <laughs> places to all the old boys, you know, there'd be thousands of you. He said, if you want to do it, you have to go through the normal process. So I did it. For the only time, I did it as a, you know, one of the masses, if you like. And 
that was when it really brought it home to me how different it was, you know, how mollycoddled these elites are because I had to get up early in the morning, get a tube, get <laughs> a plane out to Greenwich, hang around for hours, you know, instead of getting taken out there, getting your own little changing area and all the rest of it and just come out to start the race. I had to do what everybody else does. I was knackered before I started. <laughs> yeah, welcome to our world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it was good fun. I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I, I can't remember. I, I didn't. I maybe finished fifth in the over 40s or something. Okay, uh, I was going to ask. Um, so 226.29. Yeah. 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 I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. I think, you know, as I say, I wasn't training particularly hard and I was coming up for 42. So, you know, I, I kind of, I remember running around and thinking it's fairly steady. I had no idea where I was in the, the, the vets and the masters at all. It wasn't until I finished and I, I suppose when I finished and realised I was out of the medals, I thought, ah, <laughs> I should have tried a wee bit harder. But, you know, it was, it was good. I quite liked, liked doing it. It was the only time I did it as a metro runner. Oh, is that right? Okay, cool. Do you know, that must be, um, yeah, I mean, I, think, I can only think of, in fact, no, Kyle ran for four. Right? I actually don't know if a, met, if a metro run vest has ever been around London quicker than that. <laughs> honestly because uh which is yeah. quite which is actually if i'm honest is uh it's slightly embarrassing for the club and you know when you said you were saying that was a disappointing run for you as a vet you know kyle i think was forest when he ran 225 um oh, yeah. and, and 10 years younger than you were um <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's incredible yeah but um i'm trying to think uh, it probably was I'm, I'm trying to think how my performances went downhill from the early 90s onwards that that was probably my pb that year that year. <laughs> nice. uh, I can't, it's all a bit vague now. I can't remember. By the time we got into the mid 90s, I can't, can't. I can only remember my good times, not my bad. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Fraser. Um, I think that's he's had many a, many a time on tartan running shots now, and quite rightly so. The, the guy is an absolute legend. So uh, yeah, thanks for that interesting insight to marathon running, especially the London as well. Um, so, Tom, there was a couple of results from last week. Uh, we we kind of touched on it a couple of weeks ago in the last episode. The Ingebrigtsen brothers were doing a cheeky wee 5K, weren't they? Did, did you see that or did you... Did you check, see the result? Or? I saw the result. I haven't actually seen the... I didn't see any of the footage. Now, this... I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, I think this is the first race that we've seen back. And when I say it wasn't just, I thought it would just be the two or three of them doing a time trial, but it was an actual race. There was, a, there was an actual field in it. Did you see it? I didn't, I haven't seen it, but I mean, I, I know, obviously saw the result. And the younger of the siblings, Jacob, he broke the Norwegian 5K record, which, which was quite interesting. But um, it's, it's interesting though, I'm sure there was, a, there was also another race in Norway. And the reason I know that is it was a 10K race. But one of the guys who went to the World Trail Running Champs uh, and competed for Norway, he, he put up an Instagram post saying he got a personal best in a 10K. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know how or you know, what, what the format was, but he ended up winning this 10K race in Norway. And um, I, I, was quite, I was quite surprised by that. So... 
maybe there is some races going ahead that we just don't know about. Maybe low, lower key races that are um, in low risk areas. Uh, so that that was quite interesting. So Norway's perhaps not hit as much as some of the other countries, but um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, J- Jacob's run was fantastic. He ran what was it, thirteen thirty seven? Um, I think he was doing halfway in seven minutes or something. Uh, so it must have been a f- certainly a fast uh, second half anyway. So so yeah, um, in fact. Is re- well that the record was thirteen thirty seven, so he ran a thirteen twenty eight. Henrik also broke the record by finishing in thirteen thirty two. So, um, yeah, pretty cool, eh? Very cool. And what I and you know, as well as it being really cool, just the fact that it was a race of any sorts back, I was really it was really cool to start to see how how races could come back. And in this one, they had I only saw the first five, and I don't know if there was even more than five, but the first the first five of them are in like a grid at the start. Um, in fact, no, I can see a picture here. There's definitely more than five behind them. They must have done it in waves. And so the first five, they're in like a, you know, like a, almost like a Formula One style grid. So they're socially distanced. Now, I guess at some stage you're going to have to go past people. But it had me thinking on my long run yesterday of, of how races could come back. Because in this case, they've clearly, we talked in here previously, but maybe it's waves. Um, and what's interesting, because obviously that, these get, this is a, a race from what I can see to run fast times it doesn't look to be like a mass race and it struck me actually that maybe that's how you know races need to we need to think of running is there's two part two parts to the sport that is running as we as we think of it there's there is the top end elite athletics which we like to watch and then there is the mass participation piece which every it doesn't matter if you're running a 30 minute 10k or a 90 minute 10k that you can enter the race i think the i think it's obvious the latter is going to be coming back later but i was thinking of my run i want to get your feeling on this kyle what would be cool so you're scottish athletics say and you want to put on a 10k championships this year what and i'm I'm, you know i've been watching a lot of u.s sports at the moment in the u.s we know are all about regionals nationals all that sort of stuff and i was thinking what if you had a national 10k champs and each club could only put in five runners and before that, each club had to have their own within a club trial, or perhaps there's a there's a, a you know an ab, a city based or an area based trial, with which clubs can only put in five athletes. So you end up, and I've just finished reading a book. We'll come to the books I've been reading. I've just finished reading um, "Running with the Buffaloes" um, by Chris Lear, which is about running with the the one of the collegiate teams, the Colorado Buffaloes, as they're training for the season for the. NCAAs. Anyway, and it's interesting because obviously it's all about who's going to make the team for the for the day. And I was thinking that would be quite cool from a club level. Scottish Athletics were in a position to say, right, in in October there's going to be the Scottish 10K champs. We can only have, again, I'm pulling numbers out the air here. We want to socially distance. We want to minimise it to five runners per club. So the best five runners, runners at each cl- or each club can submit five runners. So then we as a club at Metro need to then choose our our teams and perhaps we have our own trial or perhaps we, you know, but I think that would be, that gets back to top racing at a sort of national level. And I think that is the more I think about it, the more I think that's, I really think that's the best way to do it to get top, to get championship racing at a national level back. Um, You know, I think it would be good for a competition side because someone like me, who's probably like, I don't know, six, somewhere between six and 10, I would say, at our club. It, start, it starts yep. to suddenly gives me an incentive to get my finger out because I want to make the fire because I want to go to the national 10K champs, say, and wherever it is. And you could use somewhere like, um, 
the um, what's that place in Glasgow where they have a, a very fast park run where the the, the Tom Scott ten miler is. You know the one I mean. Run the run the wee lock sporting lock. Anyway, it'll come All to right. me. But that, what do you think yeah, about that then? Strathclyde if, if Country Park. Strath, that's the one. Well done, Strathclyde Country yeah. Park. So, what do you think? What would? You, what's your take on that? I think that's quite a good idea. Um, I think it just depends on the numbers of competing in the event as well. I mean, if you've got a wide open space, does it, does it have to be restricted in terms of numbers? If you've got, say, for the national, I don't know, like the senior, the senior championships, you've got what combined. Male and female was it two thousand or something? Is that? But that's yeah. But say it's two thousand. You will you will never have a. I really don't see a two thousand strong race happening this year. Yeah, but I mean, if you were to have it in waves, though, like you know, you have your because it is it isn't fair that unless you're fast and if you're not fast, then you won't get to go to these events. And I'm talking about championship events. I'm not. I mean. I get that, but also you think you've got to also remember the vet veterans as well. So what, what about the the age group, the age yeah. group, the age groupers as well? I mean, they won't get a chance. Or do you, do you have the top, the top five, from senior to, to over sixties and beyond, um, and then they they get to go and and then you know, have their own championships. Yeah. So you could. I think I think that's a great idea. Um, if the you have to find a way to to limit the numbers competing in the event. Um, but I do think reducing the number of, of participants per race is, is probably one way that you're going to have to do it and, and look at where your race is being held as well. Like you say, Strathclyde Country Park, potentially that might be too much, you know, because you've got other people using the, the park and yeah. in a race situation, then it might make it really difficult to to social socially distance as well because um, you know you know what's coming what i was i've been looking at a lot of how various sports are coming back and one thing that's really impressed me is the nba in the states they're coming back it looked the, the sort of leading plan for them from what i understand is they're looking at hosting the rest of the season at orlando disney and it will be all the teams will be under in the same place all the, the and, I, and by that the, the sort of support teams like you know your massage teams your your physios your chefs all your trainers, everyone will have to stay within that bubble that is Orlando and they'll just play out the season there. And say one of your players gets, has a, everyone will have to be tested, of course. Say someone picks up and it suddenly shows positive on a test, then they're out. It'd be like if they're injured, they're out. Um, and that had me thinking, I think what the problem with, you know, professional sports, you can almost, you can, to some extent, you can kind of bubble them, but amateur sports, it's very difficult. And I, yeah. you know, and it's, you know, you say like, even at club training, we're now looking at, do we, we're probably going to, have to put in like a registration system that you not you you say that you're coming. And I'm, you know, we we can't just have open training nights in the in the first couple of phases on the Scottish um, government's yeah. things when we do start going back. So races like Park One will be let, will be last to come back because Park One is you cannot. I just can't see how you can have an event that is. It could be one person. It could be three, four hundred people. You can't control yeah. that at all. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, every event is going to have to really look at the numbers and look at the locations and look at the the guidelines that are set by you know the government but mm. maybe some of them anyway yeah. some some of the officials aren't adhering to them anyway but we'll go into that oh, yeah, it's no. a running podcast but the thing um, is if you if you think if we do start restricting numbers 
which is not ideal, but I think again that's one way to get championship racing back. Maybe we need yeah. to talk, think about what other ways there are for mass events. The problem is if you do start re- reducing numbers, it becomes more difficult to close. I, I mean, I'm sure financially it becomes more difficult to run them. It will become more difficult to close roads, which is why yeah, I thought something like Strathclyde Country Park. You can't really shut down. I'm not sure. Could you shut down city centres for 100 people to race? I'm not sure. Um, well, that's it. Like Sterling 10K is a prime example. Like. In order for them to make anything, you've got the funding from, I don't know, I don't know how it works for Sterling, the club funding, funding from this, the council. Um, they're going to be stretched at the moment, um, reducing the number of participants. They're not going to make much, if anything. Um, no. So, And that's probably the safest way that you can, you can run an event is on closed roads. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or like, a, yeah, like something like a country park, but you can't close country park to dog walkers and cyclists and runners and families and things so yeah it's, Why it's a bit of a mess eh? I don't think there's a one one size fits all answer no. so, but, um, I think people I think runners I think we as a running community are going to have to be patient in the sense yeah. that there may be some races that are, I mean do you know if some race come back and say right we've got 200 spots it's going to be a nightmare to get spots and that's yeah. why I think that if, if you you if need to have on you go. No, no, you go. Well, I was going to say, that's why I think if you said, right, the Sterling 10K can only have 200 people and it's the Scottish Championships, that's not going to work. That's why I think for championship races, you're going to have to prioritize to have the, the, the fastest people line up. And there's an interest there. And I think then there's an opportunity to actually make races out of these things. And maybe, and actually, there's an opportunity there to, to, to celebrate who the, provide some coverage, maybe, you know, put a, a live Facebook live stream on it. I, I don't know. I just think there's um, the mass thing will be is clearly going to be fastest finger first. Yeah. Also, um, it's it's an opportunity, and I kind of mentioned already. It's an opportunity for clubs to put on their own races for their runners too, and um, and you know you can you can manage that number because numbers aren't as high as a mass participation race or yeah. even a championship race. So. Um, it gives them an opportunity to to take part in something. But I think uh, there's going to be a lot more local races taking place and with mm-hmm. lower numbers. And um, but it's where you do that and and the restrictions that you're going to have to put in put in place for that as well is going to be interesting. So yeah, yeah, we can touch on it in future episodes, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I guess in terms of finishing our speculation, Dublin has been cancelled. It was due for the end of October, so that's the first kind of autumn race we've seen get cancelled uh, or you know that's due to come London issued a statement saying they're going to give an update on the 21st of June I think and yeah. uh, we haven't heard anything from Boston I'm not sure what Berlin are doing I've heard rumours and I saw some stuff on the on some forums online that London are looking at doing a using like a, a lapped course for elite only yeah so uh, obviously that doesn't affect me. So I'm not so interested in it. Depends how but, elite elite is, sorry. Well, I mean, mate, you'd have to you'd have to be pretty. Your your definition of elite would have to be extremely loose <laughs> for me to have any any uh, potential interest in it. So I think I'm. I mean, for me, I'm all heads down looking at Valencia now as being when I'm going to lace up. But I mean, we saw UTMB's been cancelled. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a bit. Of, it's really. Yeah. Who knows? I'm. I've just put out a night. An announcement about space aid, the space aid ultra. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, it's not going to be taking place in August. And due to the reasons we, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and 
um, there's not really any clear light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, so the two options I have currently are to postpone it until November um, in the light that we, A, reduce the numbers taking part um, and put the, the sort of necessary sort of COVID restrictions and social distancing measures in place. Uh, or B, if, if, it's, if it's not improving, then we, we postpone it until next year. So it's a nice, simple, you know, it's, yeah. it's not great. It's, it's not great news. And um, there'll be a few runners who will be upset about it, but it's the same for all these races at the moment. And um, it's not worth the, uh, you know, the, the participants' time um, and the risk as a race organizer to put something on where um, there's a potential that, people can catch COVID. So, mm. um, so yeah, that's a bit disappointing for me, but hopefully there's a bit of hope there and that's why we're looking at potentially having the race in November um, and just really, you know, looking at the, the risk assessment for that. And, and if it's not good, if, if it's, there's no light there, then we will postpone it until next year. So, mm. yeah, that's, that's that, Tom. Yeah, it's not, not an easy time. Anyway, so let's uh, away from races. How's your running going? How much you were getting much training in last week? I've been doing all right, Tom. You know, like I've I've been hitting some mileage again, and not not a huge amount, just ticking over every every day. I've been trying to you know have like a, a sort of number every day, so I, I try and aim for about ten. Whether or not I do that as a double or a single, I try and do it as a single. You know, because I'm Debbie's now back at work, so I'm trying to. Play, you know, have more time with Logan, and um, but he, he's been coming out and about with me, literally out on in his out and about uh, Nipper Sport. So nice. um, it's been brilliant. You know, we just yap away. He usually doesn't sleep until like the last sort of couple of miles, um, and uh, yeah, it's been good. But I'm going to try and potentially get up a little bit earlier and just increase the mileage. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a big challenge that I'm going to uh, reveal to everyone uh, quite soon. Hopefully, um, if if uh, I, I get the go ahead, um, it's going to be pretty cool, eh? Hey, Tom, yeah, I've I, so I've been um, privileged enough to, to hear this, and it's very exciting. It is. Um, it's it, with these challenges and things. Like I always find, I could you know a challenge for me isn't to just go and do a marathon. And I'm looking to raise a lot, like a lot of money for charity as well, because I think generally this this challenge excites me, but it scares the shit out of me as well. <laughs> and it's uh, <laughs> there's a big and it's it's not just a I'm gonna run a ten K or a marathon, it's it's massive. Um yeah, it's, it's a big and challenge. I'm really putting my neck on the line to try and try and achieve it. So But you you uh, know what I so I've been doing I mean this is something that's just come to mind for me through pro, you know, sort of professional development at work and thinking about, you know, career planning and all that sort of stuff. And it's you know, so I've been I speaking to some one of our managers and he's been talking to me about BHAGs. Do you know what a BHAG is? Never heard of a BHAG, Tom. BHAG is a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> now it's, and it's something you should, you might, it might be too big a reach, right? But it's, yeah. if you don't have a BHAG, what are you shooting for? And if you, you know, you're inevitable, you know, and it's, it's healthy to have something. And uh, so it's gotten me thinking well, clearly at work, but also in my running as well about what is, you know, what is the BHAG and, and what to, you know, and how, how audacious is it, in, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of, you know, my, my BHAG is not quite as audacious as yours, 
Um, but you know, that's, I think it's good that we're thinking about what do we want to do? You know, otherwise we just keep trotting out the same times all the time and not actually trying to progress. So I think it's really cool that you're doing that. You've got a, a big goal. And I think, I think you'll get a lot out of it actually. And actually, cause I, I you know, I know you extremely well now you're someone who, when you don't have something on the table, I see your, your, your motivation and your training drop. But the minute there's something on the table, yeah, it picks right. up. I, uh, yeah. I, well, I think exactly. That's why I'm wanting to do something that's exciting. Cause at the moment there's nothing really that's coming about probably until next year for, for me now. I mean, yeah. some of the events, but this one is entirely within my own, my control as well. Um, and that's, that's something that's given me a little bit of hope and a bit of excitement. And, and that's probably why I'm going to have to try and up my training a little bit, get up earlier to fit the miles in and so mm. that I can, you know, when Logan's sleeping, uh, I can just do a couple hours before work, or before, before he wakes up. Um, so, so yeah, no, I, so, so tell, so that, that's my BHAG and I will reveal, I don't want to reveal it too soon because there's a couple of hurdles and, um, contacts i'm needing to speak to, to to try and make it happen um but but what's your behag then have you have you got one that you've been thinking about or i have know, yeah i have I, I have and i'm intrigued to get your take on it um, yes i don't know this by the way listeners so this is a this is a first for me so reveal I, your behag well i think you're gonna it, it might actually also fire you up a little bit but um and you i think you're gonna you it will make sure fire up and roll your eyes but i'm gonna <laughs> I'm I'm would really like I'm gonna to aim to work towards two twenty five for Valencia. Oh yes. <laughs> I love it. I mean, you know, I was I, having listened to Steph Tell Stwell, Steph Twell, yeah. Jess Piasecki, Steph Davis, right? These are girls who have and I, I say that, you know, without any disrespect at all, these are incredibly, you know, inspiring athletes. They're running yeah. that sort of time off halves not you know th- within what I'm running. And I, I, okay, there's a lot of checkpoints for me to get. There. I need to get my half down to under 70. I need to get, I would need to get a, to under 32 minute 10K shape. But, you know, I've also had a lot of London marathon watching. You're not telling me years gone by in London, 75 British men going under 220. And, you know, there's club runners here. You know, I think, you know, Tom Roach has been an inspiration. He's a guy up here who's run 226. No, and it's a it's a massive yeah. re- it's a massive reach for me. But I I just think if I try if I go into a training plan to run to, based on two thirty again, it's going to be deja vu. And I'm yeah sure my marathon pace isn't there yet, but I think it's it's a carrot. And you know um, who knows how, maybe maybe a two twenty seven is a more realistic goal. But I just think what you know you only live once. Throw out a big goal. Um, yeah, so we'll see. I think you're, I, I'm excited for you. I think it's it's good. You know, it's great that I've always thought, you know, that you 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 can run fast in two thirty, absolutely. And for you to say that you think you can run two twenty five, I think you can. I mean, you look at look at all the girls that we've had on. Look at some of the guys like Tom Roach and all that. They've all started at two thirty, two forty, even two fifty. Some maybe even three hours plus for their first marathon. Absolutely. Now, you're five minutes in a two and a half hour race. Isn't that sounds a lot, but if you, if you've got a plan that can make you faster in terms of, so, so my question would be, you're at the moment, I think you're maybe a 229 guy, right? Yep. Maybe even faster. Who knows? We don't know. Um, so what do you think you need to be doing to get to 225? 
I think consistency is one thing. I think that um, yeah. I've had the last two years, I've had too much time when I've, I've not run consistently enough. I think at the moment I'm in a pretty good place. I think my 5K, yeah. I would like, to, I think the 5K a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'd like to do it on a proper course just to make validate. And, but I think, you know, getting down a lower, a low 15 minute 5K needs yeah. to happen because I need to get clean to get faster. I look at, you know, I think. If I, I've looked, I've spent a lot of time looking at people who run sort of two twenty five, and I think I definitely need to get down to low sixty nine half. And as a result, I think I need to be running somewhere around thirty two flat, under thirty two for ten k, which is, you know, I still think is a is a massive leap. Um, you know, I, yeah, it requires a lot of hard work. So I think it'll need a bit of a block and on uh, on speed work. The, my yeah. volume's not too bad. You know, I was running ninety five miles a week consistently through the marathon block there i've done eight weeks on the bounce 20 mile long runs i'm feeling okay last week i felt i, I am quite fatigued right now i think i maybe need to think about back off a wee bit but i think i'm building up over the last sort of year and a half i've built up to the well to the to this place where i can run 85 90 mile a week comfortably which is where i think i need to be um yeah. i actually think i need to get away from all these doubles and you know it's, it's interesting what you're saying i think you're absolutely right i think i could do with getting to volume off singles to really you know, going that almost like that Lydiard um, mindset of of big of volume runs rather than these. I've been I'm guilty of doing too many four mile runs. You know, just to top up. Um, but yeah, I think it's. I mean, again, we're talking Valencia is a long way out, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a long way out in the sense if I get if I train consistently and well to Valencia, I think I've got a great shot. But equally, we'll see what happens. If it, maybe in October I run a half and I run. 70 30 and i'll say well do you know what clearly this is not going to happen but um yeah anyway it's it's kind of it's something that's that's got me fired up um yeah and, and i'm not you know and to be honest i would take let's be honest i would take any i would take anything between 225 and 230 right now that's the you know that it's the but uh, it's i just don't want to go into the same i don't want to go into a third marathon cycle trying to run the same marathon pace i think it's time to to try and press on a bit um we'll see and i'm not an idiot i'm not if i go in if i get to december and i'm clearly not in that sort of shape i'm not going to be going out at that pace and also if i get to sort of september october and I'm, i don't think i'm in that and i'm i'm unable to run what is it like 532 534 something like that miling for the marathon base if i get to that place and i can't run those miles at marathon pace clearly i'm not going to burn myself and try and do it i'll i'll, I'll try and ease through it but i think yeah, we'll see. I think it's. Uh, I think you need. You you said it yourself earlier. It's you need something to challenge you. And if it doesn't, if a goal doesn't scare you, it's not really. It's not ambitious enough. Yeah, I think so. And it it's got to give you a little bit of fear and a little bit of drive, and and that's what both our goals have got now. And exactly. Um, and you know what? It gives us something to talk about, even if we don't achieve it. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Mine <laughs> but, is not quite as mine's not quite as exciting as your goal, but it's. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, hope and hope because I've got a spot of Valencia. Hopefully, we can the the path to that can happen. Exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to your journey, and uh, I'm looking forward to to lacing up at a race with you as well. If you get to that shape, and and uh, it, 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 it's going to make it quite. You know, the Tommy versus K babe. Uh, <laughs> Showdown, eh? You know, it would have been, it's a shame you're not doing Valencia. That would have been, that would have been incredible. <laughs> I mean, I actually, do you know what? Because when I was looking at times, you, I mean, it became apparent to me your marathon is, I've known this, I've realized this for a while, but I didn't quite see how your marathon doesn't line up with your half and your 10K at all. 
No, it doesn't, does it? Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, you've run, you've run, you're running what 30, 50 or something, or 30, 40 for 10K. There's no, yeah. there's, and I'm looking at, I'm, there's no, I know I don't need to, A, I couldn't, but B, I don't need to get down that quick, I don't think, to run 225, yeah. which would suggest I mean, I, I that you were in better I, shape. Yeah, when I ran that time, it was like two years apart, the 30, 50, and the, the 225, but I was, I would, I, you know what, I, I would, if I was in the shape I was back then, I would love to go and hit another marathon and get a faster time. But I'm just, you know, I, I'm not really that bothered anymore. You know, if I don't get a, a faster five, then I don't really care. You know, I'm happy with that time, but I really enjoy ultra running. I enjoy the the experience, the training, the and going to all these amazing places and even your training, running in tra- on the trails and going to like Austria and, Chamonix like yeah. you could do that just doing marathons I mean some people do get away with doing some 10k work and mar- marathon work and, and they get to do some ultra trails and they do excel at them all but I think for me I don't think you can excel in all three of them you have to really specialize mm-hmm. in, in, in what you're looking for and that, that goes to even ultra training like you can't just do a mountain ultra and then just go and do a flat ultra you've got to you've got to um, focus on on that specific ultra discipline and distance mm. so um so yeah well i, I was hoping you're going to say something like you're going to be doing a, the, <laughs> 100k or something but uh but i like I've it told, i've I like, told you this before i will do an ultra at some stage but when i'm when i'm old enough but actually so listeners give us a, let us know what your hags are let us know what your big goals are you know and don't be afraid to to put something down that you don't you don't have to let us know just have a think about it yourself if you're on a run what would be a big reach for you um and don't don't feel that people, people might go, ah, whatever, or slag you off. Don't worry about it. people like that, doubters and things. This is your BHAG. It's no one else's BHAG. Exactly. You've got to tell people what your BHAG is. Go for it. But um, it's, if it's something that excites you, and if you fail, you fail. I mean, there's times, many times I've failed in races and achieving times and, and you know, and that's, that, but there's also successes that come from failures and, and you learn from them and that's where you can achieve your, your BHAG. So, um, but I, I've got, you know, I'm looking at this goal now. I will reveal it shortly, but I, I could, there's a huge, a massive chance that I could fail this and make completely blow up or completely. Um, I think you'll do it personally, right? And I spent a lot, I've, since you mentioned it, and I think you're, I think there's a huge, it, the, the un, I think there's a huge, I think you're, I would probably put you at 60% likely to do it. There's a big, so there's a big chance that you don't do it. But that's yeah. what, that's why it's such a, a massive, it's such a BHAG. Yeah. It's cool though. I'm really like, cool. It's, it's uh, and you're right. You need, you need something like that. Like, you know, find a goal that you, you can do and, and just go for it. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very excited about when you, when, when you, and obviously you need to, you need to pull your plan together for it. So we'll, we'll give you the it, time exactly. to do it. But once you have, that's really cool. And that's, yeah. and as you say, it's, it's good. It's good that it, to, Liven up the show a bit. You've got this <laughs> weekly update and how that's going. It's uh, scraping the barrel now, you know. It's, <laughs> it's come up with own challenges to, to, to make it interesting. Oh, dear. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we don't really because we have got a fantastic interview coming on. Uh, Steph Twell, who is a Scottish athlete, um, Olympian and all-round superstar in terms of distance running. One of the Scotland's Britain's best ever distance runner. So, um, so yeah, Tom, you had a, a, a chat with her a couple of weeks ago. So do you want to introduce it and we'll, we'll get going with the interview? 
Yeah, I think you've teed it up perfectly. I mean, exactly as Kyle says, one of the the top Scottish athletes on the circuit. The fact that she has the Scottish marathon record says it all. We were obviously really excited to see Steph run at the at London and as part of that elite field of these ladies we've spoken to recently. And and yeah, I'm, I'm she's a really she's someone who's really been around the circuit and yeah, it was great to have her on the show. And I know a lot of listeners have been asking for her. So here we go, Steph Twelve. Welcome to the show, Steph Twelve. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, you know we I mentioned to you before you are absolutely top of the list in terms of listeners' desires to get on the show. So we're really excited to get you on. We know certainly in recent years your your record speaks for itself. But you know looking into your your record more in preparation for this, what really struck me is some of the it's just such a consistent record. I mean, you've got so, so strong and representing, you know, Great Britain at a junior level across country. We've seen your, your Commonwealth, Worlds, Olympics. Um, and one thing I really, I didn't, I didn't realize this, I'm ashamed to admit, but <laughs> British 5,000 meter champion, four years on the trot. That is oh, incredible. Five, five years. Five, was it five years? <laughs> I beg Sorry. your pardon. Sorry, so that, what is that 2015 through to 19? Uh, the first one would have been 2000. I beg your pardon. 2013. No, 2013 through to 2018. 18. Wow. Yep. Okay. So there you go. So I've even got that one wrong. Anyway, absolutely incredible. And um, and yeah. So you know, we're we see we're you're so you're really on. We see you so much in the moment in the, in the athletic scene. And we'll come to that. You know, this and London was going to be great, and then hoping to see the Olympics. But just for the for some of our listeners, can you maybe just rewind and tell us about how you got into athletics and a bit about your your background as a junior? Gosh, well, that's a bit of an intro, isn't it? Um, yeah. So um, athletics for me, I've always just had a love of being outside, playing outside with my friends after school. Um, but my dad um, was in the army, so I'm from a military background, um, oh. and I always had sort of my dad um, kind of participating in marathons himself so he's run like the berlin marathon um my dad's a keen orienteerer so cool. being part of the ethos i kind of was kind of exposed to that a little bit from a young age you know seeing him return for a run stretching against the wall trainers at the front of the door um so there might have been a little bit of exposure that way um and then it was um basically until we moved to aldershot which is where i'm based now um is when there was a local athletic club probably about 800 meters from our house at the time so when you're in the army you get posted every two years and um it's just for us it was a really nice way of just kind of meeting the local community um so my dad encouraged me to go along mainly because we would walk the dog behind the house and there were runners passing um <laughs> and then i guess i just got hooked really so yeah i, I kind of started locally at a local athletic club all shot farnham district what sort of age was that at that you got into, you started joining that club then? Uh, so I joined the club when I was about 10 years old. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but didn't really see any uh, major progression until I was about 15 years old. Okay. Um, so that's when I really started to develop over the cross country. Um, yeah, yeah I, mean, I think. It's, and you've, you've, you know, I said, look at your record. I mean, you've, you're, the success you had, you know, as a, as a young athlete a junior right you know junior you went to world world and euro junior cross right 
Yeah, that's right, actually. Um, I would probably say my coach at the time probably didn't think I had much ability on the track. Um, it was actually through the development on the cross country that led really nicely into the strength and endurance of my aerobic capacity um, that supported running fast on the track. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I was anything too special. I had loads of competitors that were better than me at the time. Um, but my talent, which is what he said at the time, was always my work ethic rather mm -hmm. than actually natural raw talent. It was my ability to apply myself, to commit to the sessions that he set and, you know, be able to adapt and understand them a bit, I think. Okay. I guess that's so important. That work ethic is so important for cross country where it's, uh, you know, you need to be able to grit your teeth and, and work hard run a course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all about definitely gritting your teeth. <laughs> so, so what, so when did you move to the track then? Is that, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you say you're, you're the cross country junior background that, I mean, did that back then you're going to these you know major championships at a junior level, did that really ignite that fire to, to continue on and see and really, search um the same level at senior level yeah well it's interesting looking back at it from a senior athlete now to looking back at my juniors because i think most juniors um you're kind of um just of the pursuit of enjoying you know re representing and competing for your club at the weekend um i think it was maybe naturally not being so complacent and not actually valuing the performances making them mean more than they were at the time like um and what i mean by that is my coach was very um keen to expose me to competition so he okay. the, more, the more the opportunity to race the more i developed by experimenting in styles of race in experimenting in like time trial situations um so i was never really afraid of competition and i think that's actually where i learned my skill is that actually you've got to have a starting point somewhere and even if it's you know not at a high level it was you know competing for my club competing for those points um those positions you know i've got a great memory of actually um the uh cross-country relays that we're part of and actually i was placed in the c team as a junior and i actually on the first leg came back the fastest runner just because i wanted to be with my mates like nice. <laughs> to be in be in the a team with them and you know so there was that sort of feeling of i want to keep up i want to yeah hang out with the guys that are like get, getting a little bit of that success and I want to share in it mm. um and yeah I'm part of a really big athletic club which is endurance heavy which is just great um and also Mick himself in my early years of my coaching he'd run numerous marathons himself so I always had that exposure okay. you know um mm. so yeah I think the track came about really from pushing myself with a really good group of athletes and that would be really uh, the ethos of my coach back then was mixed squads so training with boys as well as girls um mm. definitely training with some senior athletes so an adult would often be in the group they'd be the ones encouraging the jog you know in the interval but <laughs> just having that like that reliable person that you can turn to it was like it didn't really matter if you didn't nail a session it didn't really matter if you didn't race well at the weekend it was kind of that community family feel that you kind of got from the club that even if they watched a session and it went horrendously wrong they wouldn't really care you know so it was <laughs> yeah. that, that breeding that breeding ground for being safe to feel i can try really hard but also if i fail then it's not as bad because i've mm -hmm. got the support yeah that's really interesting. I think that's a really, that's something I love, you know, love to hear. We're big fans of the, you know, clubs and club athletics. And I think that's, it's really, it's really nice to hear someone at the elite level you're at now 
world level to look back and say, you know, you were, you were, you were, your bread and butter was, was local athletics clubs, cross country, club nights, you know, that's really, that's really cool. Yeah, and what, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but even to the point about two years ago, I went back and joined my club sprint group, you know, nice. that, that I've never really touched on. Well, I have in my SNC, but actually to integrate into what my club athletes, af fellow compatriots do at the club for sprinting, that was a really nice crossover. And I think actually we need to probably tap into more, even as endurance athletes, into those mm. different strength and conditioning skills that are available at the club. That's interesting. And as a, as a junior athlete, I mean, you look at your record, you did, you looks like you did that sort of trip typical eights and fifteens, you know, as a, as a junior. And, you know, it's amazing you then to know that you then you're eventually someone who's running, uh, running at the worlds at 1500, you know, that's, that's, in, that's incredible. Um, did you have your heart set in that distance? Is that something you, you, because it's, we don't always see 1500 meter runners necessarily step up through the distances. Did you, think this is my distance is that really for you fell in love with god uh, right i can't really remember i mean yeah i think for me watching kelly holmes was quite pivotal um seeing her at an olympic games but equally having you know a lot of the british press and british athletics supporting paula radcliffe you know mm. for me exposure at the mini marathon showed actually we've got in our like country like a female that's at the top of her game and I think that was really instrumental actually mm -hmm. um likewise for Kelly Holmes there was quite a lot of support from the on camp with Kelly at a young age and so okay. there was that exposure of being quite like it's it wasn't um a pathway that didn't exist it wasn't something that was new mm -hmm. you know um, it was available and a little bit more tangible um and for me, I guess, when did it, I know that I got good. I, I mean, it's so, so many years ago now, <laughs> I feel old. Um, I can't really remember other than, I guess, the 1500, just, I just love tactics. One of my strengths, I think, is my tactic and my strategy. Um, I love that sort of dog eat dog, like standing nice. on the line. I'm just really into that strategy. Um, whether I had the head for it, I don't know. Um, but I guess the turning point was, London 2012 a little bit I was one of those kind of keno athletes <laughs> that just believed that I could possibly get there I don't know why it stemmed from believing I was going to get there but I just believed it I just held on to it and thought why not <laughs> you know and, and well, I guess that's that is I mean one of the beauties of of us hosting Olympics but I mean just to go before that I mean I don't want to make you feel even older but 2008 <laughs> Beijing right I mean well, that's, that's 12 years funny. ago that's incredible it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah expose the lady's age but yeah no totally I think what happened with Beijing was that was kind of a byproduct of aiming for London which was just crazy okay. um so I got the Olympic qualifying time in 2007 I had won the world juniors in 2008 it's amazing so I had a standard available plus once I became the world junior champion that was my exposure to um working with a race agent and that's the next okay. transition that most club athletes will go to is finding someone that can get them into the right type of races to get mm. even more exposure you know i think it's fantastic that i have competed against girls i can still you know ring off the top of my head now um and still have really good duels with but i think opening yourself up to testing yourself against competitors that you have no clue what their strengths and weaknesses are was really, really important in my early part of my development. Um, so as soon as I got into races on the European circuit internationally, I had to cope with different tactics, different um, 
different ways to prepare myself for my own race in a different time zone, in different environments. And I think all of that just grew a bit of a tool bag for me um, mm-hmm. to develop. But yeah, I think Beijing for me was just probably a step ahead of my development. Um, but again, I think if you actually really break that down as to some of the reasons why I was able to compete over that distance at that age was probably because I actually believe in strength and conditioning from a really young age. Okay. So um, as part of the TAS development program, um, I was picked up to you know, have access to some nutritional support, some uh, physiology support, and then SNC was quite new to me and I loved it. It was so much fun. It was just different to normal training. So, that's good, yeah, that's, good really, to, that's good to hear someone describe SNC as fun. That's, uh, that's good. Uh, you can make anything fun, definitely. Um, yeah, plank challenges, pull up challenges, um, just learning a new skill for me was really fun, especially if you've got the right group to have some banter with. Um, then, yeah, I think it's a great, a great accessory to your training. I think that's a, that's a good message actually in terms of for, you know, we have a few younger athletes who do listen to it. And I think that's, yeah, you know, it's introducing it early is, is a, that's an interesting one. Yeah. I guess, you know, you, one thing that was interesting, you mentioned about getting into the right races. So what sort of races are you, do you mean by that? And what was that like at, you know, at that age to really suddenly find yourself competing on that, that circuit? Well, there's two different things really. I think always stepping up in age, I never really worried because actually you've got less pressure stepping up um with against senior athletes you know I was always had a little bit of a safety blanket I guess being a junior but racing against the seniors so for me that removed pressure it depends what personality type you I was able to interpret that that was less pressure um and then I guess you know some of my early memories was going to Rieti in Italy uh, a little mountainous town in the middle of nowhere looking back I can't remember how you even get there (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then you know warming up without a coach because coaches don't always get to travel with you um kind of like you know holding your own in the warm-up area when back in that back in those days it was Safa Powell was like the guy that was stressing around (laughs) area um but that's telling my age as well yeah absolutely like there was a moment when I got the Olympic qualifying time when the race was stalled and it was delayed because he'd actually run a world record on the track. Now I didn't see oh, the wow. I was warming up, but like we were stalled. We had an extra half an hour to keep, you know, turning your legs over, keep mobile. And it was like, what do you do in that time? You know, you've got no one to turn to. So you have to kind of be quite independent. And then anyway, completed my race, ran, just got towed along to this amazing race. Again, like I was with some of the best in the, in Europe at the time um just being towed along just holding on to the you know coattails of other athletes um finishing my race coming out to pick up my rucksack and then a staff of powers just sat next to my rucksack and I'm like okay now I'm getting exposure to seeing different event groups who are the best in their own right you know so for me that was exciting you know I want to be part of that scene and that that just kind of grew my my love of the sport even more you know just to see how other athletes operate i guess that's amazing uh, it's very i must yeah it must be inc- incredible to experience that and one thing then so it's you know we talk about beijing you know you say it came a bit too early and you mentioned london now so london i you know it's i've you know reading 
and remembering back. You had a bad injury in 2011, is that right? And you, you know, you've an ankle, is that right? Fr- fracture or something? Yes, that's right. Uh, I, so I broke my ankle in three places. It's called a trimalleolar fracture. Oh, dear. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so I was competing in Belgium. You know, they have the Lotto Cross series out there, which mm-hmm. again, it's great exposure for athletes just to, you know, Across the channel and get to different different experience but you know they say belgium probably has rain probably about 350 <laughs> days of the year <laughs> so i mean proper cross country you know um really gloopy mud and i was leading at the time and i went down this ditch and for some reason the course went down a ditch across the ditch for two meters back up the other side of a ditch and my foot in the bottom of the ditch just got vacuumed in and into this really squelchy mud and I turned and it didn't come back out you know when mud sucks your shoe off well yeah um, yeah so my ankle kind of twisted and broke in three places so I had surgery twice 2011 then 2012 and yeah it's t- it took me actually after 2011 it didn't it took me until 2015 when I competed for a GB internationally again. So people probably can't remember that, but I had a bit of a hiatus from GB representation. So that's awful. And then how, I mean, that must've been really difficult to deal with. You know, you've London was, you know, you said how yourself, how, how, how keen you were to you know, represent at home games, you know, you're on the right trajectory and something like that happens. I mean, how, how do you deal with that at that age? Um, back then, how do I deal with it? I think, um, I never knew, I never thought I was ever going to give up. I loved the sport too much, but it did give me an opportunity to grow in different areas because I'd actually been quite professional junior. You know, I'd had lots of quite, um, not overdeveloped, but a lot of amazing experiences beyond my age, you know, really. Mm-hmm. So for me, it actually gave me a little bit of <laughs> sport regression in a way. Like, yeah, I went to uni. I was, I lived on after uni I you know was still training around my university environment but I got to just take that pressure off Steph Twell who was the fastest you know European junior or mm-hmm. European I just took the pressure off a little bit I guess um so I dealt with it with good family support I dealt with it by going to an intensive rehab unit where they supported me really well um I had good family and friends I went to music festivals I did stuff that I probably the season cool. didn't allow me to do um, because mm-hmm. I'm always training in the summer so I just focused on those small things and also I started working actually I worked in, <laughs> in a coffee shop um, I then started to work as a teaching assistant so I just diverted my focus a little bit but okay. still had running in the background but I just had to work with my body rather than against it because quite often you want to, I wanted to do like the training I thought my body could do prior to the, to the injury, but it just took a long time to work out what worked with mm-hmm. the scar tissue with the meta work. Um, so yeah, it took a while to figure that out. But once I did, I was back on that sort of pathway again. I mean, it's, it must be great to get back on it. And, you know, you say 2015 back representing GB, obviously 2014 is the start of that 5,000 meter British champion streak, which is, which is incredible. Um, and in terms of you know distances, obviously, so 2014, you're back, you're running 5,000, and that you know British champion from there on. Coming back, was that a, was that an active switch to say, right, I really want to start moving up the distances, and did that? Because when I look at your, you know, if you take out that period of injury, you've got this really what looks to be quite a traditional stepping up through the distances. And although we see a couple of half marathons early on in like 2011, I think I saw a pretty mm-hmm. quick half, um, in fact, a very quick half. <laughs> um, 
what 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 prompted that step up to five thousand? So I think the real prompt was the injury. Um, I because of the meta work and the scar tissue, um, I actually ran four hundred seven the year after I broke my leg, which is still pretty decent. <laughs> yeah. But by the time that people, the event had moved on slightly, I wouldn't say a lot, but it was really difficult for me to make the team at the time. Um, but really, when I, I actually got injured again before the trial in 2012, because the scar tissue just didn't let me get off on my toes and I couldn't sprint properly. Okay. Um, so it took, I don't know if you know about scar tissue, but it, it takes a little bit of modeling um, to apply the force through the fascia that you know it's all kind of meshed up and you have to kind of realign it and that took a long time after having two surgeries so for me I couldn't do speed work for a good two and a bit years I couldn't do hill work for two years because running down the hill would just balloon my ankle um so for me actually going a little bit more submax started to help so the 5k was a new impetus a new focus that didn't make me compare myself to the pre-Steph 12 prior to the injury. And yeah, uh, like a new challenge, really. I needed that focus. Um, so that was really what kind of started my journey into the 5K. Okay. I mean, I mean and, and you journey into what, you know, really successful at it. And we, you know, we see you go to, you know, go to Rio. We see you go to the Worlds in 2017. You know, a really good run there at, um, at, at 5,000. Tell us a little bit about Rio. How was that as an experience, you know, um, having missed London? Uh, well, I think, you know, making the team, people, you know, sometimes you get a little bit um, are considered like you're not aiming for the moon if you say that you just want to make a team. But really, 2016 was that sort of um, fruition, like everything coming together after all the years of injury to get myself back on that that stage was so rewarding um but you know I've got to say my experience in sport is probably richer than just focusing on the Olympics if I'm really okay. honest and it's taken me a while to kind of get to that but I've had disappointing experiences at the Olympics you know I was in 2008 I was knocked out and in what was the semi-final um in Rio I got knocked out in the heat you know um and there's certain elements that you kind of feel there's going to be this olympic magic that's mm -hmm. going to carry you to this extra performance and actually you've you know you've got to really be ready to really perform at the olympics it's it is next level mm -hmm. um and yeah for me i think i'd probably put quite a lot of energy in getting there that for me the next step was something that I've still got to work towards um, and understanding that journey a little bit in the process to getting there is so important than just expecting once you finally got there, it's going to be okay. It's going to happen. You know, this mm -hmm. performance will deliver itself, which I'm not one to do that. I always work for my performances, but um, yeah, it's quite hard to describe, okay. <laughs> but That's I think it, it, it was tough 2016. Uh, it wasn't the race I had expected. Um, and actually you can come away from sports still being disappointed, even at a top level, you know? And I think that's, it's interesting you talk about the sort of wider, um, you know, wider than just, you know, the Olympics. And because one, one thing that, you know, I really wanted to speak to you about was we were delighted to say we, as someone who's representing the Scottish athletics community, delighted to see you run and win at Falkirk a few years ago at the National yeah. Cross. That was really yeah. cool. So, I mean, that was, that's, you know, and actually on that point, I'm, I'm actually, 
I didn't realize the extent of your ankle injury. So running cross then, that's, I mean, a brave move and also great to see that you can still run and compete so high at such a high level on cross country. Is there any issue with the ankle as a result? I guess not. Yeah, I mean, it has taken me a while to go back to my cross country roots. Um, and I think that is really important actually to check the terrains you're running on because of the ankle. So I used to okay. have to in Edinburgh, for example, have a hot water bottle around my ankle just to move, make the mobility work a lot. Um, wow. But yeah, for me, I think cross country is something I will touch base to at the right periodization. And actually later in my career, I've learned more about periodization. Um, and, you know, track seasons are really long track seasons are really intense and actually also doing them year on year is quite mm -hmm. difficult to manage so there are certain seasons that you need to go back to your fundamentals which i still believe is cross country um but equally now that i am moving up to the longer distances over a marathon i still believe now that the pathway for cross country is really well linked to the marathon and mm -hmm. 10k so yeah there's an element of me coming back to cross country a little bit more later in my career because I can periodize it better. But when I was running back to back five Ks and, you know, trying to run 1500s in a season, it is tough that you don't actually have an off season because I've historically been really kind of full of racing in the summer. Plus having a cross country season for the length of career I've had, it is quite tough. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, the periodization thing is something that we, you know, it's, I guess the marathon, a lot of club runners will like this because marathon with the spring and autumn nature, you can kind of almost, it gives a, you know, us regular club runners quite a, a naturally yeah. broken up year. Um, so, yeah. in, you know, on, so you're, you're then, you, you, I mean, we've seen you run, you know, Valencia and Frankfurt so far, both autumn type winter marathons, obviously at London, unfortunately, which we'll come to um, this year. So you, you're typically going to hit, hit, you hit a cross country season at the start of the winter to take you through to the second half of the year for a marathon. Is that your plan? Well, funnily enough, right now, I'm probably saying that I'm probably doing a bit of work on in, during lockdown, a bit more cross-country work. I obviously know cool. tracks are available. I don't want to be running on the road to, um, to try and reduce the incidence of injury because there's no physios available. So actually, mm, right now, I would probably say post my half marathon stint, which I started in the spring, I've actually gone back to cross-country work. You know, I'm running a bit on Heathland. I'm running on undulating ground and trying to run fast on undulating ground. Because for me, I, although my training, like you might not see me race cross-country as much, my training in the week is still predominantly on grass, on tough terrain. And okay. for me, my, I think the consistency in my career and the, dura the duration of my career is because of protecting my body from running on the right surfaces and being really picky about surfaces. Um, actually being, you know, some people might say you're picky because you won't run on rutted ground. I'm the opposite. I'm picky that I'll choose rutted ground to get me conditioned. To That's get really me, interesting. Like, pro, yeah, get my proprioceptive ability um, tuned in. And I really believe people running on tough terrain can actually also contribute to 1500 ability. Mm. You saw me in the Commonwealth um, in Australia, um, there I had in the heats I had to dodge an athlete that fell before and I yeah. actually encountered that to my ankle conditioning obviously the years of rehab I did post-surgery but also my ability to run on trails I run on quite a lot of single trails in the forest close to me I think it's actually really good for you know hip stability proprioception moving through different grounds different terrains at different paces up and mm -hmm. down 
is so good for your lower limb conditioning. Um, but yeah, I've gone off on the tangent there, but really I think cross country absolutely serves a huge purpose. Um, but I am aware that some of the road races for me now are getting earlier. So okay. for example, this year I went to Houston and I had planned to run New York. So for me, mm. um, it kind of does cut the cross country short if you start moving onto the roads. Mm -hmm. um, and it depends which model you want to follow. Do you want to you know, go right up to your league races to probably early road racing scene to London? Um, or can you get some different exposure continentally? You know, can mm -hmm. you get races that for me means that I would probably use the earlier part of the cross country as um, conditioning and return to running after the summer season? That's very, very interesting. I've been reading a lot recently of stuff from, and listening to a few interviews with Steve Jones recently, who, you know, Steve Jones talks so much about, um, you know, training off-road and training, and he, you know, notorious for training without a watch and training on time and training to condition his body to handle, you know, he put down a lot of his, his uh, that sort of physique he had and the upper body sort of Brilliant. strength because he's running off-road. And I think that's really interesting to hear you do that. Yeah, I believe, I can believe it. Um, an interesting fact about me is I only started using a Garmin probably about two years ago. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so I've grown up my whole running career just running to time, not knowing the sort of distance I've run, maybe having a guesstimate of what I'd run, but only recently kind of, yeah, switching to the mileage approach just to be a little bit more careful on monitoring the variables as to what was it that helped mm. me get was it the mileage was it the intensity was it the frequency of a certain type of session um so yeah i think i totally agree with being off-road i think people need to get off-road more i see a lot of marathon runners stick to road to get conditioned um but my strength is also the track background so i really think the beauty of a bit of meeting in the middle is that you can still keep the intensity on softer ground um but also develop that strength that you equally need for the road. Mm -hmm. So they complement each other really well. Um, and I really probably like Steve and probably like quite a few marathon runners. I really do love a hilly run. So we grew up, I mean, in the squad group that I was part of, um, <laughs> we used to have like, you know, king or queen of the mountain, every hill we hit <laughs> on a hilly run. That's cool. Dash up it and sprint up it in the first to the top. It was then, well, whoever's setting the pace at the top of the hill is not going to slow down and wait for the last person <laughs> to get up. So keep running fast and hard. So I think that was quite interesting about the perception of me as a junior as well, is that I do did run quite hard and it's probably true. Um, but really my mileage wasn't that high because I didn't wear a Garmin. So it was actually only set by time, which mm -hmm. always stopped how much running I could do um, because I wasn't going chasing miles. But, maybe I'd push the intensity in the mile. So I might've been running further. Um, a bit like the Jerry Schumacher sort of style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually really my early part of my career was probably only 70 miles occasionally in the winter, maybe up to 80 for two weeks over the Christmas period when we had holidays, but I was just very good at consistently training with intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, and only now am I starting to even extend the efforts and I still feel like I'm quite young in my, this new distance mm -hmm. 
So for listeners who are, who who think, do you know, what? I like that advice from Steph. I really, I might start doing some off-road runs. What what would what's a, a typical cross-country or off or off-road session that you would you would do, um, you know, at the moment or or previously when you're in cross-country training? Well, I quite like personally to focus on time rather okay. than distance on those sort of cross-country efforts because I just think focusing on your effort just helps you dig into that rep whatever sort of style it's going to be um so last saturday was just very basic because like i'm going like i said i'm going back to cross-country work at the moment um building up a 30 minute block so if you can build up that in any shape or form with like a slightly longer tempo effort on the front to then gradually going down to some short intervals that for me is hitting a little bit of interval work but because of the strength of the terrain it's going to give me that aerobic hit that specific mm-hmm. conditioning a little bit more so just something like 12 and a half seven and a half five by two i don't know 10 minutes five minutes five by one five minutes five by one something like that that is um going always touching back into that tempo zone but then coming out of it to just spike the lactic a little bit and that for me just gives me that pace change a little bit mm-hmm. um but, you know, you know, then finishing with hills is also really important. So, you know, even if they're as short as 30 seconds, putting six to 12 of them on the end of a session, I just think it's really good for your sprint mechanics as well as it is for the tolerating fatigue over mm-hmm. that sort of terrain. So, yeah, I mean, my first month was all focusing on hills at the weekend. Um, but now I'm transitioning to lower undulating ground, but trying to run faster over it. So okay. it's not completely flat it's running fast over undulating ground ready for when i run flat i'll be strong enough to when it hits me towards the, the later stages of the marathon i'll have that strength in my legs mm. to keep going that's interesting that's really interesting That was amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show and speaking to Tom, Steph, and yeah, really interesting interview. Really enjoyed listening to it. Um, so yeah, have have a great season and yeah, hopefully see you at some of the racing circuits soon. So Tom, you've um, we, we as we as promised last week, we said we would do some interview questions or fartlet questions uh, to each other. So so I'm 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 going to start off um, just as we do with any other guest. So, what is your favourite shoe, Tom? Pegasus Turbo Two. Pegasus Turbo Two, nice. I love I it. They're discontinuing that one, eh? They are discontinuing it. So, um, I mean, what I love about it is it's so light. The ZoomX foam with React is so it's like it's soft, but gives you real responsiveness. And I, I love like just put you can put in a pretty solid amount of mileage in it and have a and you can run an easy run in it. You can pick it up and I mean I've done mile reps in them. And the reason I moved to it from the Pegasus was I, I found the, the, the blown rubber on the bottom of the Pegasus was peeling off because I landed on the edge of my foot, whereas the turbo's got this kind of like rubber around the, the edge of it, which reinforces better. So I can get 400 miles out of here, which is good. You're right. Nice. They are, they are removed. They are discontinuing it. I believe they're going to re- move it into the next percent stable. So it'll be called the next oh. percent tempo. So it'll be, I, from what I understand, the same shoe. It'll just be like the next percent without a, without a plate. So anyway, I'm I'm not going to start running in a, net, a you know expensive next percent shoe, although the turbo is quite expensive. Um, unless you yeah, that's true. So I'm wow. I'm actually going to look at I'm looking at a couple of other shoes. I'm 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 going to do a review next week for the 
uh, Nike Infinity Run React, which I which I'm, I'm I'm really enjoying running in. A bit very different shoe though, and I've actually got a pair of Adidas Solar Glides arrived today, which I'm going to uh, run in as well. So we'll see how those go. Very good, very good. What about so you? Um, well, what's what's your Infinity like? That well, in fact, let's leave it until next week because I'm intrigued about the all this foam and the Pegasus Turbo and things and what sort of run they're the most benefited for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of my favorite shoe, I don't really, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I don't really have a favorite shoe. Um, but the ones, the, a couple that stand out in terms of, I, I like a shoe that feels light on my feet and it feels fast with a low profile. Um, from you, need get, you, you need to get a turbo then, mate. Well, that's, well, this is it, you know, I mean, I have to fork out. Uh, but I mean, I have been running in the Nike Zoom. Uh, the, the, the Zoom Nike. Fly. Yeah, Zoom flies, um, and I've been wearing them for easy runs. But it's a racing shoe, but it just feels so comfy when you're going for easy runs. Um, in terms of cushioning and and sort of lower profile, but that's probably one of my favourite shoes in terms of roads, running and, and training. But it's not that great on the trails. So in terms of the trail shoe, um, again, I like a low profile shoe. Um, so I've been running, you know, the Hoka Torrent that I had. Um, yes. I was. I, I think that's a great shoe. It's really light, got a good bit of cushioning, and uh, but also I've been running in the Ultra Lone Peak one, four point five, um, which is a zero percent from the heel to the forefoot. Really light, got a good bit of stability and traction in the on the sole, and it's my feet are. I mean, I've 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 got club feet, Tom. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you look like I could I I could I could bat I could I could be a good cricket bat. You know, with, with the, <laughs> the hoops I've got. Um, and the ultra shoes have got that really wide forefoot in the front um, so I, I really enjoy running that shoe I mean it's just a new shoe that I've, I've recently purchased um, and it just feels so light and um, like you're not really wearing anything on your feet and, and I, I really like that it just suits my running style and, uh, and I'm not really a heel striker I'm more of a midfoot striker um, and it, that sort of low um, differential and, and the heel the forefoot just uh, there's literally no difference um, just allows me to run uh, naturally so in my opinion anyway so so yeah that's my shoe and as a fartlek answer for you there Tom <laughs> that's your long yep. segment in your fartlek question yeah favorite what's your mo- favourite movie Tom well I'm asking am I t- we're doing these turn about or not <laughs> oh yeah sorry alright <laughs> <laughs> favourite movie Again, I'm not really a movie. F- like I've, I've, I watch movies all the time. But, I, you know, I, I like, I don't know. Uh, Ghostbusters, probably. Wow. The, the we have not had that before. That's a, a original <laughs> or a sequel. A classic, you know. Interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a childhood, good nostalgic memories, happy times. Ghostbusters. It's got to nice. be. Nice. Yeah. What about you? So listeners would probably think I'd jump to Creed. And although Creed is like is up there, don't get me wrong. My favorite movie is probably Remember the Titans. Ah, oh, nice. Classic. If you've got Disney Plus, fire that up. It's on there at the moment. <laughs> it's I, I can't I can't even remember imagine how many times I've watched that film, but that is a hell of a movie. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Close close second would be uh, a few good men. But yeah, remember the Titans. Like it. Like it. So is it me next? Am I asking you now? Go for it. Favorite race? Boston Marathon. Oh, nice. You? Right. Oh, 
I think it's going to be Tarawira. Nice. The ultra there. That was just, oh, it was just amazing. It's nice. just like New Zealand's amazing. The, the trails there were fantastic. Because it was like a big kind of ultra trail world tour race, going in there with like an expectation, like not really an underdog. It wasn't, no one knew how, like what I could do. And, and, and I had a kind of goal and to try and get a top five and just not knowing that I was in the top five until like the organizer told me at the end was just amazing. Like cool. the feeling I got from that was, was awesome. Um, and yeah, just running with some of these big guys were, was, was cool too. So, uh, and it was a challenge, you know, it was 102 kilometers I was running for and, and it hurt. It's a long way. Yeah. <laughs> so that was amazing. The, the scenery in the jungle and then, you know, all the lakes around, uh, Rotorua and things going through the, the, the salt plain and, um, the geezers, whatever they're called, uh, was fantastic in the last, the last 5k of the race. So, so yeah, that's nice. my uh, favorite race, Tom. Good answer. What's your worst race experience? Uh, probably one of one or both of the Amsterdam marathons. Is it? <laughs> I mean, nobody likes a DNF in a race. I think the although do you know anyway, yeah. So Amsterdam marathon really has a horrible memory to me because it's just both times I've, I've had a and the issue. Do you know what I reflect on though? I don't actually think I was in as good a shape as I thought it was at Amsterdam last year. Um, I actually think I might have blown up. I was looking back at my training the other day as I'm plotting this road to Valencia and I'm thinking I, my mileage wasn't there. My sessions weren't on. Uh, I had a few excuses as to why at the time. I think I was trying to persuade myself I was in 230 shape and maybe the mind would have would have got me over there, but I don't think I was as in as good a shape as I was at Frankfurt. So I think, anyway, and that's 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 a different reason. But yeah, Amsterdam just both times, especially the second one, because the second one I went in and I had a, a sore knee at the start of the week and I was like so frustrated because I thought I was, I was really up for sh- taking on that 2.30 mark. And then I thought, uh, because I really did nothing, very little running during the week and I thought, okay, this is, maybe I'm just going to, I can get into a place where I can run through it. And I felt really good through 10K, right on pace, uh, was moving well. And then from about 10, 15K, I think it was that sort of distance, it started to get sore. But I could feel it and it wasn't sore. And it was that feeling of, can I see this out? And I was like, right, I'm not just pulling up here because I'm going to keep going. And it got worse and worse. And that feeling of like inevitability at like 25K Mm. where I thought this is, you know, you realize, I realize I'm not going to make this. And I'm not, I'm running sort of hobbling, making, needing to make a decision. Do I continue on or and just run anything? And what, and I'm I'm not going to be able to run for another 15K here. So do I keep running or do it? What do I do? And Anyway, and then, then when you decide you're going to stop, when do you stop? And I'm like, do I just pull up here? Anyway, of course, as I said at the time, I got to like a, a subway station and thought, well, this is as good a place as any. And fee was just up the road from there. So, yeah, that would that for me is a, a standout. What I about mean, you? Oh well, you know, you know what this one is. It's oh yes, <laughs> my, the world's way. <laughs> <laughs> At least the Walls Way got you. Well, yeah, at least the Walls Way got you to UTMB. Oh, exactly. It I mean, it's, it's, al- it's almost like my worst and best race experience because I learned, I learned what failure really is, and like to overcome something that's so brutal 
and the pain that I couldn't even walk fast. I couldn't even walk. Like, I mean, I, I had to walk to get to the end. But like, you know, when people can't actually run, it felt like that. It was almost that close. I mean, but they, that I didn't know if I was going to get to the end. I mean, the balloon ladies were going faster than me <laughs> on the tracker. I mean, if I was like, if that happened, say, at the 20K mark, I wouldn't have, I would have got eaten up by the balloon ladies, you know? Um, so, I mean, it was, it was just a, so many lessons learned in that. And, and I think you come back stronger. And I think I did come back stronger after that. It did set me back a lot. So I thought, God, is this it? Is this my, like, I actually can't run any, any, I can't run fast anymore. And then obviously doing the, the British 100K champs and, and getting a third yeah. there. And that it was almost like, yeah, it was just a, it's just a blooper, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, worst race experience, but probably the most I've learned from a race, and even though it was my worst one. So, so should, we do what, should we do one more then, and then we'll, we'll keep the rest for next week? Rest yeah, let's day, do that. Rest day or recovery run? Uh, it's got to be a recovery run, Tom. You know, I mean, I, I do like a rest day, but the last two months I've maybe had one or, one or two rest days, and, and that's it. But in... And I've, I've earned those rest days, uh, but you always feel better doing something rather than nothing. So, uh, yeah, recovery run for me, Tom. What about you? I'm a recovery run man as well. I, I think if I don't run, I, I honestly believe a short, even if it's just a 30 minutes easy, I think it loosens you off, it gets blood flowing. I, I don't think there's a huge amount. Uh, if I have a rest day, and everyone's different, but if I have a rest day, I, I start to seize up. I feel, you know, some of my niggles start to worsen a wee bit. And I really like to, also for the mind, I like to get out for a run once a day as well. So yeah, exactly. rest, recovery run for me, for sure. Like it. Well, that's our fartlet questions for the week, folks. And um, yeah, next next week, we'll give you the second half of them. So, um, so other than that, Tom, probably one last thing. We, do we have a TRS run of the week? Is Big Ali Sutherland still thrashing it out is he going for the the elusive 50 50 marathons in 50 days perhaps well you know as we as we speak we'll need to look at this um let me see as it's loading um, i think a couple of days ago he did one so he must i think he's still be going on i'm sure he is let me I'm just no, no doubt more. well i don't have you got any i i don't have a runner of the week so nor do i really i mean i all I'm seeing on Strava is people, and in general in Scotland, there's people just training. So there's not a huge, there's not even that many. The virtual races seem to be well and truly over, and nobody's that fussed about them <laughs> either, which is fair. Very um, Although we, we do have uh, the, the West Highland Way race, They're, they've just recently announced a, a virtual um, week of running. Um, so yeah, go go along to the the West Highland Way website. Anyone can enter. Um, it's it's raising money for charity. Uh, essentially, I think it's you. You run. Um, you've got to run ninety-five miles in nine nine days, nine point five days. Um, you can run it in teams. You can run it solo. Um, you can also run it all in one go. Or you can run it in in stages. So yeah, have a look at it. It's a really interesting format, and um, I, I think I think we get a lot of a lot of traction from that hopefully I, I might we might well get involved as well eh Tom absolutely yeah we need to it's, uh, we've got a bit of time to plan how we're going to do it I was actually just disappointed for you when it says you can't do you can't do it solo because I was going to when a minute I saw they were doing it I was going to say to you well, you know what, 
what, what do you need me for? Why don't you just crack on and, and run it yourself? But then I see that you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're not allowed to do it on your own. So yeah, that let's, we'll get involved in that, which is cool. Yeah, I think so. Get a, a cheeky wee TRS team on, on board. Eh? Absolutely. So yeah. Ali Sutherland is still going. Yeah, he is. Crazy now, bastard, He's yeah. really testing my knowledge of Roman numerals. What's that? <laughs> uh, 30... Is that 36? That is... Blimey, that's... that's 39, I beg your pardon. 39. 39, all right. Well, Ali, you may as well get to 50 then. There's yeah. no point stopping at 40 then. Absolutely. What a yeah. man. Do you know, I felt, I've got to say, you think about the mileage in the legs. I had a really, I had a shocker last week. I, I mean, I, like, I bailed out of a session on Tuesday and I felt just awful. Like Tuesday through to, not until Friday did I feel okay. I just felt so heavy-legged, so like really just loaded. So I took a couple of really easy runs and I'm thinking, and that was, and I was thinking, oh yeah, it's because I've done a lot of miles, blah, 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 you know, yeah. a bit without, without any break. And I'm thinking, how can, I mean, this is the guy who's doing this, He's doing 195 mile weeks back to back to back to back. It's crazy. Oh, nasty. Oh, yeah, well done, yeah. Ali. Crack on, mate. Well done, dude. And we'll have to get him on the show. I have a chat about, you know, Absolutely. how and why. Absolutely. I know. Well, yeah. the, why, the why is more. Why of it? It's more interesting. <laughs> Very good. Right, well, as always, folks, if you do want to contact us, we do appreciate um, you getting in touch with us. You can email us at tartanrunningshorts at gmail.com. You can check out our website designed by the fantastic Lee O'Connor at tartanrunningshorts.com. Check us out on Facebook. Give us a like, Tartan Running Shorts. Um, we've also got a new Instagram handle too, at Tartan Running Shorts. So check it out. Uh, our, follower, our followers are growing as, uh, every day. And we're also back on Twitter again. So check us out there. And finally, if you do want to give us a review, we'd hugely appreciate it. So pop over to iTunes and uh, give us a five star. Leave a comment. Um, it does give us a little bit more um, credit in the world of podcasting. So It does. Yeah. And that, I've ju- we should have mentioned this before. And vote for us at the National Podcast Awards. I forgot. We totally we both forgot. Forget. So the National Podcast Awards, we, it's a free-for-all and the listener's choice. So, who? I mean, I'm sure the power of the TRS listeners could make something happen. I don't even know if they'll give a breakdown of results, but yeah, let's. If you can get behind us, that would be fantastic. Much that would be awesome. Yeah, that the least you can do uh, would be to get on over and uh, yeah, vote for TRS, and and uh, you'll you'll see us in in in, in a black uh, suit and tie for uh, the, the virtual awards. Eh? And remember, TR, despite what you see elsewhere on Instagram, TRS is is the original and best Scottish-based running podcast. Exactly. Exactly, folks. So, yeah, remember. Um, but we only, we're only that if you guys listen and contribute. So continue to contribute and we'll keep Absolutely. providing the content. Yeah, and actually, loads of people have commented already saying they voted. So thank you, everyone. Much it's been it's amazing to see you know all these people uh, messaging us saying yeah, I voted. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Oh yeah, hugely appreciative. So thank you so much, folks. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that, Tom, and uh, we'll we'll catch up with you next week. And good luck with the challenge. Yeah, here's Ali. Here's Ali McIver.
us in the evening We'll be dreaming About that starting gun They sometimes shuffle Sometimes saunter When we train, when we train When we train, train, train It can be savage But never brutal Because we'll love the wind and rain You could Tommy You could Kyle They bring news, they drink brews They do interviews They like park run and cross country And Nike's dodgy shoes So bring some tarp And let's go running In our shorts, in our shorts In our short, short shorts Because there's banter when we canter When we canter with the tartan running shorts. And that's a wrap.